The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter Nine, Plans and Feast. Martin heard laughter coming from the road where the truck was parked. He took a wide turn with the cart bearing the last barrel of fish, so he might peek between the buildings and see what was so funny. Beside Charles's flatbed stood what looked like an old bread truck. Script lettering, Gutem and Bakery, stood out in faded red lettering on what used to be a yellow boxy body. Another glance revealed the Humvee beneath the box. "'What the heck is that?' Martin asked. "'What does it look like?' Tyler asked proudly. "'A train wreck?' Martin hedged his answer. "'Bah! Everyone's an art critic,' said Tyler. "'No, meet Frankentruck.' He waved his arms like a game-show host, revealing the grand prize. "'I told you,' countered Kutch. "'It's Trojan Truck.' Tyler dismissed him with a wave. Eh, never mind. Take a look at what we've been up to while you were out playing with boats. Cutch spotted an old bread truck back up in Northampton. It took a bit of muscle to get the box off the frame, but we did. We also saved you the old wooden flooring. Figured it'd be good for wood chips. Okay. Martin wasn't sure how to react to the truck project, but wood for chipping was good news. But we knew the box alone wouldn't be enough to really disguise the Humvee. D'Souza found this 85 Chevy pickup pretty badly rusted, but the cream color was almost perfect for the old yellow of the box. See? Don't they work together? Uh, I guess. Well, I think they do. We took out the windshield and duct tape it in front here. That'll cover the Humvee's flat windshield. Then we took off the fenders and the hood. I know, it starts to looking like the Hulk busting out of his shirt, but they do hide the Hummer's corners and all. And you took off the grill, too, Martin pointed to the front of the Humvee with a veneer of chrome grill. Yep, pretty convincing, I think, Tyler beamed, arms folded over his chest. Well, I guess so, but why? Martin needed a few more notes before he wanted to try to name that tune. That's why I say Trojan Truck is the better name. Kutch stepped around the side. We were talking about our assignment and agreed that one reason that we probably don't see anything of these bad guys is because we're riding around in a Hummer with a saw mounted on top. They'd be nuts to show themselves to that, right? But if it was a food truck or something, Tyler interrupted, they'd probably pounce on that in a second. Hey, I'm telling it, it's my plan, scolded Kutch. So, we talked about ways to disguise the Humvee to look more like a plump target. I remembered seeing that abandoned old bread truck on one of our patrols. The guy was actually happy to get rid of it. Yeah, well, most of it. D'Souza remembered seeing the cream-colored Chevy. There wasn't anybody at home in those houses, so we kind of took the parts off by eminent domain. A hood, a windshield, some fenders, and a grill. All that to add to the big box and, viola, you got a tempting bread truck. Kutch took his turn as game show host. Well, I don't want to be a rain cloud, 
Martin chose his words carefully. But this still looks like a Humvee, just with junk taped on it. If I was a bad guy, I don't think I'd be fooled. Okay, okay, we thought so too, said Tyler. That's where my part of the plan comes in. What if it was the second vehicle in a convoy? Imagine if Franken-truck, that's Trojan truck, it's a Trojan horse thing. Tyler rolled his eyes. Imagine if Franken-truck was traveling close behind the trailer. You wouldn't get a good view of the lower body. He held his hands up, making a box out of his thumbs and fingers, like a movie director. What you'd see is a big bakery box, and maybe just enough pale yellow sheet metal to suggest a regular truck. Martin tried to dial back his skepticism. Okay, let's say these bad guys aren't paying that close attention. Or they're just hungry and greedy, added Charles. Okay, hungry and greedy, but then what? Ah, that's where Tyler's genius comes in. Kutch invited Martin with a wave to come around to the back of the truck. Duck under. Martin ducked under the battered lower edge of the bakery truck's box. Inside, it was dark enough that his eyes had to adjust. Kutch climbed in the rear of the Humvee. We got the box balancing on this two-by-four across here, see? It's pretty back-heavy already. But then we've got the front tied down up here, just in front of the pintle. Untie this, and the box tips up and falls off the back. Uh, we've done that a few times already by accident. So we know that part works really well. Anyhow, when the bad guys pounce, Robert Shaw releases the rope, the box tips off the back, and the saw is ready to sing. Uh, now wait, Martin furred his brow. You said Charles's truck was in the lead. That means they get shot at first. Okay, I'll admit it's not a perfect plan, conceded Kutch. But we've worked that out too, uh, sorta. He exited the Humvee. Kutch pointed to the refinements to Charles's truck. We took the tailgates from the Chevy and a couple of other pickups. We filled them with sand and set them up in the bed for you and Nick. Oh, that was nice of you, said Martin. Kutch didn't notice Martin's dry sarcasm. Eh, no problem. We figured that'll stop most rounds. In the cab, we stuffed some more metal pots. Tyler and I'll ride up front. We'll be in full gear, helmets, chest plates, and all. Charles and Germaine will ride in the back seat. Firepower. D'Souza will drive the Hummer. Robert Shaw will man the saw. You and Nick keep the old Ford running and just try to stay down in the back. So your plan is for them to ambush us, then Robert Shaw mows them down with a machine gun? Well, Kutch hedged, technically... Our assignment is to capture them, but if they was to put up a fight, I can't say I'd feel bad about mowing them down. Ideally, added Tyler, they'll recognize superior firepower and give up. Reasonable bad guys? Martin raised one skeptical eyebrow. Tyler shrugged. Well, it could happen. But if they want to fight, we plan to overwhelm them by surprise. Anyhow, we figured you and Nick were game, right? I see a lot of chatterboxes who need something to do, announced Gill behind them. Everyone turned. We've got five barrels of fish in here that need cleaned pronto. If you'll all pitch in on the cleaning, I'll make a big pot of fish chowder for supper. 
I still got some potatoes and some onions. The last few words were sung as an enticement. Robert Shaw agreed to stand watch on the trucks. The rest went to Gill's. He had set up two long ad hoc tables out of planks in the little yard between his house and the alley. The men set up two assembly lines, or disassembly lines, to process the fish from the full barrels to the empty ones at the end of the tables. Martin wasn't sure how it happened, but he ended up with a gutting station. He suggested that everyone rotate jobs periodically, but only D'Souza agreed. He was the other gutter. The motion didn't carry. The first several fish seemed to take a long time to get processed, but after a short while they fell into a rhythm. The heads came off, the belly split, the gut scooped out, the body split into a butterfly fillet and then dumped into a barrel with a few chunks of ice. Edwin made sure that all the heads and guts went into his chum buckets. He had gathered enough chum for several other fishing trips. Martin could almost imagine he saw the wooden man smile. It might have just been a shadow, though. They also cleaned the two barrels of fish that Charles had traded for. All of the fillets were stacked in an assortment of mismatched poly barrels. Gill agreed to rent barrels to Charles and Tyler for two armloads of firewood. They would bring them back on their next trip. Yeah, finish her up, fellers, Gill called from the door. Chowda's bout ready. They all rinsed off their hands and arms in the frigid water of the inner harbor, hastily wiped on pant legs to dry them off. Martin entered Gill's house, wincing. He expected the stench of diarrhea. No one else was gagging or grimacing, so he took a short breath. Huh, no stench. He relaxed and moved into the room, making way for others behind him. Butch stood by the wood stove, feeding in some of the logs that Charles had brought. Butch looked gaunt, and none too strong, but he was getting around on his own. He gave Martin a little nod and a smile as a nonverbal thank you. Okay, fellers, take a seat, but be careful with the sawhorses underneath the boards. I don't want you kicking apart my fine dining room set. Gill laughed at his own joke. Hey, gather all round now. Chowda's done. He set a huge stockpot in the middle of the table. Gill remained standing while the men all found a seat in a few chairs and a few overturned buckets. Now bow your heads. I'll be saying grace. Gill said it with authority. He waited for everyone to comply. Dear Lord, we thank you for keeping them blues out there where we could net them. Thanks for keeping us safe out there, too. We know all that good stuff what happens is from you and not just dumb luck. Feel free to tap us on the shoulder and point out where we're drifting. Thank you for all this fine food. Amen. The hot chowder lifted everyone's spirits. Several conversations crossed the table at the same time. Gill waxed ambitious about his plans for Wendeline. Tyler and Kutch continued to reminisce about adventures in Iraq. D'Souza and Nick traded fatherhood stories. Jermaine tried to strike up a conversation with Edwin, but got nothing more than eye contact. Jermaine took it as a challenge to get some word, any word, out of Edwin. Uh, you think you guys could come back with a bigger load of firewood? Butch asked. I think that's their plan, Martin said. Planning or reselling to neighbors? Nah, I'm thinking salt. Martin had just taken a big bite, but he expressed curiosity with his eyes. I'm thinking farther down the road, began Butch. In the wintertime, keeping food cold ain't no problem, right? 
But this outage thing looks to last a long time from what I heard. Gonna last longer than winter. Come warmer weather, how are people gonna keep their food from going bad, eh? Salt, he pointed with his spoon. While I was laid up, I had me plenty of time to think. What did people do before there were refrigerators? They smoked fish, jerky, hams, corned beef, stuff like that. All those used salt. Gonna need lots of salt to make those things. Whatever salt people have now, well, that'll get used up fast. So, I figure to be the one making more. Butch's sea salt. He held up his hands, admiring an invisible sign above an invisible storefront. Salt for preserving food would be a useful commodity, even far inland, Martin thought. He motioned for Butch to continue while he chewed. So that's where I figure I'll need a steady supply of firewood, Butch continued with his mouthful. I'll boil down seawater in some big pans during the winter. Then in the summer, I can let it sun dry, but in the winter, I'll need fires. Even then, I figure not to waste the heat. I'll use the fire to warm the house here. I'll rig up a hood or some copper pipe from houses people are taking apart. Make a sort of still out of it so I'm still not filling the house with steam. Get salt and fresh water to boot. Being a small-time operation, I won't be making tons at a time. I'll have to start making salt as soon as I can to meet the demand. I'll bet there'll be a market for your salt, Martin said. What do you want to trade your salt for, besides more firewood, I mean? Butch stared at the table for a long moment. I suppose I ought to figure out what I'm asking for, huh? Hmm. Beef. Yeah, beef would be nice. Hey, that's an idea. I could trade, like, for a quarter of beef. I could salt it all down myself, make some corned beef, and some jerky, smoke some of it. I'll bet that'd be popular out here. Maybe you could trade it up and down the coast, too, on Wendeline, Martin offered. Salt and beef. Gil said Wendeline used to do salt trade up the main coast. You could be quite popular. Yeah, true, true. Just might not get too far along the coast. Gil thinks the power boys are going to clamp down on shipping, on account of that scuffle out there today. He's thinking Coast Guard Boston's going to be sending out their big boats, maybe send them in pairs so nothing can get through them again. That ferry probably embarrassed him. Even if the ferry didn't carry much, it's a big blow to their egos that it got through at all. Them guys down in Boston, they got some mighty big egos. After everyone had taken seconds, and thirds, the conversation slowed down. Tyler, Charles, and Kutch continued to swap stories. Germain gave up on Edwin and relieved Robert Shaw, who happily devoured a big bowl of chowder. Martin excused himself to go try another radio contact with Ray. The sky was already well into twilight. The stairs at the half-a-house seemed all the more rickety in the dark. Martin listened on the channel Judy had programmed in. He heard nothing but static. He tried broadcasting, even on the high-power setting. He got no response. On the remote chance that Ray or Walter could actually hear him, even if he couldn't hear them, he explained their plan to drive home in the morning and that everyone was doing well. He sat on the top of the landing for half an hour, periodically turning on the radio to listen for Ray, or anyone. Radios don't help much without someone on the other end. Anything? 
Nick called up from the road. Nope, just static. I guess you can try again in the morning before we leave, Nick offered. Yeah, I just wanted to let him know we were okay out here and on our way home. Sure hope everything is fine back home. Oh, we did leave in a bit of a hurry, Nick said. I didn't have time to get Jess and the kids squared away. Hopefully they managed okay. Yeah, know what you mean. Everybody's capable at our house. Margaret runs a tight ship. Even Judy's gotten pretty good with the twenty-two. Still, you worry when you're not there. I just hope Clyde didn't cause them trouble after I left. Well, since you're going to be up worrying anyhow, I'll let you take the first watch while I get some sleep, Nick said. Yeah, thoughtful of you, said Martin, deadpan. Just trying to be practical. No sense both of us being up late. Well, night-night. See you in a few hours. Got a big day ahead of us tomorrow. Hey, guys, came to Sousa's voice over the radio. Robbie says we need to slow down. The turtle, she's dancing all over. Martin was huddled behind the truck's cab to stay out of the cold wind. The Humvee, in its bread truck disguise, was only a few feet behind the trailer. The bakery box was bouncing noticeably. Okay, okay, said Kutch. Looks like we'll be stopping up ahead anyhow. Look lively. Martin peeked up over the truck cab. The slipstream was only thirty miles an hour, but it stung his cheeks like a blizzard gale. A white cloth hung from the fence of the overpass. The Exeter outcast signaled that they had collected buckets of wood chips to trade. Martin surveyed his remaining pile of wood chips. Chopping up the old bread truck flooring helped, but it still might not be enough to get him home. He didn't like the prospect of stopping to gather and chip up windfall along the way. Stay close, said Kutch. I want to stay on this side of the bridge. Better view. Tyler pulled the Ford into the intersection of the off-ramp and Route 27. The Humvee was still slightly hull down on the off-ramp. From that position, they had a clear view for over a hundred yards. No one would be able to jump out and surprise them. I'll give him ten minutes, Kutch said out of the window. I think I see him, said Nick. Far side, coming out of the trees. One man emerged, holding a white flag on a stick. He was followed by a second and a third, each carrying an orange five-gallon bucket. Martin waved broadly for them to come over the bridge. As they started walking, more men and women came behind them. A couple of them also carried five-gallon buckets. Whoa, there's way more than the four that we left, said Tyler. I don't know if I like a whole mob getting close, said Kutch. Hey, Martin, I hear you are the deal-maker. How about you go meet him halfway? Uh, how about if I go with a couple of other guys, Martin countered. Okay, fine. Nick and Charles. The three men walked toward the center of the span, hands on grips in their pockets. The group of twenty walked to meet them. Hey, Dennis, Martin called out at twenty yards. Looks like your group has grown. Yeah, the committee's been busy. So have we. We got the four buckets of chips. Men carrying the buckets walked ahead of the rest of the group to set the buckets in front of Martin. Martin stooped with a cautious eye on the crowd standing ten yards away. He ran his fingers through the chips, dug in the buckets, and smelled sample handfuls. Much of the chips looked like they had come from old framing lumber. Well, looks good, Martin said. 
The man in front smiled. Why don't you and your couriers bring him over to the truck? We've got some fish. We can talk trades. Dennis nodded. He told the rest of his pack to stay where they were and to keep an eye out in all directions. Martin noticed that a few of them had guns. At the truck, Martin gestured for Dennis to step up into the trailer and peek into the barrels of fish. He smiled and gave high thumbs up to his group on the bridge. Faint cheering could be heard. Four buckets of chips for one bucket of fish, Martin started the haggling. Two buckets, countered Dennis. Martin shook his head. Nah, too steep. A bucket and a half. Dennis stared at the fish in the barrels. Okay, done. He gestured to his bucket carriers to give up their loads. Martin and Nick dumped the chips out into a pile in the flatbed. Martin dusted out two of the barrels with a rag. Take fish out of this barrel here, Martin pointed to the barrel of bluefish. Take a little ice, too. You'll want to keep them as cold as you can, but not freeze them. I was told they don't freeze well. Yeah, whatever that means. Two of the bucket carriers began gingerly lifting fillets out of the barrel and placing them in the buckets. They smiled at each other, like kids at a candy store. You guys aren't going to stay on 101, are you? Dennis asked. The raiders are back. We heard them shooting yesterday. Not sure if they got anyone, if they were just practicing or something. They're in that white farmhouse close to the road up there, Dennis pointed. But a low stand of trees hid the house from view. Do you know how many of them there are? asked Kutch. Anything else about them? Well, actually, we kind of do, said Dennis. When we heard them, we sent a couple of guys out to scout them out. We wondered if they were going to come after us. We counted at least five guys. Could be six. They're set up in that farmhouse close to the highway. Uh, we think it was empty beforehand. Our wait is over, gentlemen, said Kutch with a serious look. Uh, you're still going to go through there? Dennis looked shocked. We are. Our assignment is to capture these guys. We're hoping our bread truck will tempt them into showing themselves. I hope they give up quietly. I don't relish a long chase through these woods. Oh, there isn't much woods up there, said Dennis. The house, the hayfields, and that woodsy little hill, they're all backed up by swamp. If you were chasing them, they'd have to come back to the house and out the driveway to the road. Uh, we could help. We could put some of our guys in the woods by the driveway and catch them if they try to run. Well, I do appreciate your offer. Kutch, the professional soldier, was reluctant to involve untrained amateurs. We know we're not much to look at, Dennis quickly added, but a few of us uh, now know how to shoot, and we have five guns. We can give them back the guns we took from them earlier, said Charles. Having a backstop could be handy. Kutch agreed, reluctantly. Charles handed back the two pistols and the two seventy rifle. He gave the three men a quick training session on the operation of the guns. They supplied the men with a few rounds for the pistols, but had no additional two seventy to offer. The three rounds he had was all he would have. Dennis drew a map of the local roads, the farmhouse, the swamps, and the two low hills on either side of 101. Dennis's group agreed to set out immediately to take up position along the wooded driveway. They agreed to only shoot the bandits if they came toward them. Kutch said he didn't worry about how accurate their fire was. 
just running into hostile fire ahead would have a powerful effect. The twenty of them ran across the bridge, disappearing into the woods. Martin fueled up the gasifier for running the gauntlet. If bullets were going to be flying, he didn't want to be peeking his head up to pour in chips. Showtime, gentlemen, said Kutch. Watch your sectors. Shout if you see anything. Sousa, keep your turtle close to the fish. Robbie, be ready to pull the string at the first shot. Martin watched the right side of the road between two o'clock and four. They slowly rolled past the white farmhouse. No one was visible. As they approached a gentle bend in the highway, the two hills looked like ideal ambush locations. They had just enough elevation to put a crouching rifleman slightly higher than a driver. He stared into the dead leaves. Red oaks and beeches tended to keep their leaves all winter. With the baby pines, there was plenty of concealment. Martin saw something shift between the leaves. A knee moved back. Hey! Martin shouted. Two o'clock! Shots rang out. Martin could feel several hit the truck. He could feel the truck tilt suddenly to the right. He dove for the deck. Out of the corner of his eye, he could see the bakery box rock up and back like a hat blown off in the wind. Robert Shaw swung the machine gun to the right. Chuck-a-chuck-a-chuck! Robbie fired off one burst into the brush. He swung to the right a bit more and fired off another burst. Gunfire crackled in from the left. More shots hit the truck. Splinters sprayed over Martin's head and shoulders. Shots hit the Humvee. Contact at ten o'clock! Robert Shaw turned quickly, firing several short bursts into the opposite hillside. Voices shouted. More shots. Martin started to lift up to see if he might have a target, but two more shots came through the right, striking the gasifier. Between the stake bed boards, he could see Kutch and Charles run into the shallow ditch. Kutch signaled for Charles to bound. Martin lost sight of them. The shooting continued on both sides of the road, but not directed at the truck. Martin peeked over in quick glances. More shots crackled on the left. Charles and Kutch emerged from the brush, pushing a thick-set man ahead of them. The man had his hands on his head. Once behind the Humvee, Kutch used zip ties to secure the man's hands behind his back. He ordered the man up into the flatbed, which was awkward with his hands tied behind him. Martin, keep an eye on this guy. We gotta go in for the others. Ready, Tyler? Jermaine? Robbie? Stay with the vehicles. Kutch gathered his group for a quick huddle. One pair gave covering fire while the other pair ran into the ditch. In short order, the group entered the far woods. More shots and distant shouting echoed off the trees. "'You're not God,' growled the prisoner. "'You're just another sheep.' The man struggled against his restraints for a moment. More distant shots echoed from the woods. Martin didn't like the look in the man's eyes. He pulled the high point clear of his coat pocket, both so that the man could see that Martin was armed and to be ready to fire if he had to. "'Oh, is that supposed to scare me?' sneered the man. "'Yeah, sheep don't scare me. They don't have what it takes. Only the strong has what it takes.' He pulled at his restraints again, casting a glance over his shoulder at Robert Shaw, whose attention was on the action in the woods across the highway. This outage just showed what pitiful weaklings you sheeps are, the man muttered. All those years, sheltered by your nanny state, bleeding hearts kept you losers propped up. 
kept us strong under their thumb. But now there's no more nanny state for you sorry excuses to hide behind. Martin wasn't going to speak to the man, but let him rant in monologue. Why, you can't even talk. That's how scared you are. You know, and you're a stinking little sheep heart, that this is the new age, the age of the strong. We'll take what we want, cause we can, cause we are the strong. He cast another glance over his shoulder. You don't got a right to nothing, only the strong do. Martin noticed that the truck's engine was stuttering as it idled. He snuck a quick glance at the main chamber of the gasifier. He could see at least one bullet hole near the top. The man suddenly threw his arms out to both sides. Martin turned at the movement. The man leaned on his hands and knees and lunged at Martin. There was no time to raise the high point to aim at center mass. Martin fired once, and a second time, as quickly as he could. In a heartbeat, the man collided with Martin, knocking him to the deck of the flatbed. Had he missed completely? One of the big man's hands grabbed the barrel of the high point and tried to twist it out of Martin's grasp. The other of his hands was clamped around Martin's throat. The weight of the man pinned Martin to the deck. Martin kept his finger tight around the trigger of the pistol so it wouldn't reset. He didn't want the gun going off while they were struggling. He resisted the man's efforts to twist the gun away. Martin could feel the man's breath against his cheek as the man grunted something about killing worthless sheep. The man took a deep breath and squeezed tighter around Martin's throat. Martin got his arm free and jabbed his thumb in the man's eyes. The man swore and tried to squeeze tighter still, but instead, Martin could feel the man's grip soften. His muttering had a gurgling sound to it. The man's grip on the high point softened to where Martin could pull it free. He yanked the gun out from between them and held it to the man's ribs, ready to fire again. But he didn't. Instead, he listened with a morbid fascination as the man's muttering turned to inarticulate babble. The rage lost focus. He felt the man's body relaxing on top of him. After a short, wheezing inhale, the man let out a long, slow exhale. The man went completely limp. Martin pushed against the stake side and rolled the 300-pound sandbag off of himself. "'Are you okay?' called out Robert Shaw. He had the M60 aimed at the man. Martin nodded. He held the gun to the man's head while he felt for a pulse in his neck. It could be a trick or a temporary swoon. Yeah, but there was no pulse. The man's coat had two small rips in it, but no sign of blood. Martin unzipped the man's coat. The man's shirt had two ragged holes in it. The hole to the right of center had a small ring of blood. The hole in the center had more. He must have broken his zip ties, said Robert Shaw. More scattered gunfire from farther in the woods distracted him. Martin stared at the dead man's face amid the wood chips. The look of hate was gone. He looked more like someone's inebriated uncle, sleeping it off on the couch. His half-closed eyes reminded him of Ruby's eyes. The man was dead. Martin had felt the life leave the man's body. Martin felt light-headed at the realization that he had just killed a man. Where, moments before, there had been life, there was now only flesh. Martin could feel his hands tremble, but steadied them against each other. Adrenaline crash, he thought. He knew he had to stop staring at the body. Martin sat up to peer over the stake sides to get his bearings. 
there was still more going on. A crowd of people emerged from the woods on the far side of the highway. Leading the way were three men with their hands on their heads. One of them limped. Behind them were Charles, Tyler, and Kutch, each with a gun aimed at a prisoner. Behind them were Dennis and the outcasts. De Sousa, Nick, and Germain brought up the rear. We got them all, Kutch shouted to Robert Shaw. One day it in the woods. One dead here, too, said Robert Shaw. Prisoner broke his restraints, but didn't get far. Martin took him down. Oh, good job, Martin, Kutch said. Might have wanted to interrogate that one, but we still got three for them to question. Uh, you okay, Martin? Martin nodded slowly. Oh, I see, Kutch said softly. I know how it is. Never easy. Kutch turned to the collection of outcasts. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, we got em, even though you didn't do what I told you. Oh, we didn't want to just wait, so we decided to break into the house, Dennis told Martin proudly. There was only one of them in the house. He shot at us, but didn't hit anyone. We shot at him, uh, but only broke a lamp. And a window, added one of the outcasts. Yeah, the window, too. He jumped out of that window and ran across the hayfield. Kutch picked up the story. We hit one of them. He tried going all Rambo on us. The remaining two were attempting a fighting withdrawal to the house until they saw their buddy running toward him and the gunfire behind him. I'd rather you guys hadn't shot at him from the house. You might have hit one of us, you know. The outcasts hung their head or muttered apologies. Uh, we aim to the side, said one man. Losing one of their gang in the woods and being surrounded took all the fight out of them, Kutch said. D'Souza, Jermaine, you two go fetch that body back here. Tyler, Charles, go get that other body up on the right. The hummer's gonna be pretty crowded for our drive back to base to file our report. The bandits had a lot of stolen stuff in that house, Dennis said. They had food and guns and bullets and lots of things. Sergeant McCutcheon said that we could keep it. Yeah, no idea who it belongs to at this point. Figure they're as deserving as anyone, said Kutch. With the fish and the supplies, uh, we think we can get by for a good while, Dennis beamed. Several of his group smiled and nodded to one another. Tyler and Charles stepped clear of the brush, carrying a dead bandit. Looks like we've got some repairs to make before we can be traveling on, said Charles. These jerks shot up my fort. Can we help? asked Dennis. After the dead bodies were stowed in the back of the Humvee and the prisoners laid beside them, Kutch's men removed the last of the bread truck disguise from the Hummer. They tumbled the box body into the ditch. Martin directed a couple of the outcasts, helping them seal up the bullet hole leak in the gasifier. Having some physical activity to focus upon was welcome. Solving leak problems kept his mind busy. Tyler finished breaking out the rest of the Ford's shattered windshield. The bandits had shot to kill. The Chevy's windshield was an ill-fitting replacement. It took a half a roll of duct tape to secure it in place. Dennis and a few of his men helped change the shot-out right front tire. Everyone waved as the Humvee did a U-turn and headed back east. It looked small and naked without its bread truck costume. Martin and his group waved to the outcasts as the Ford slowly rolled away. 
Dennis shouted that they should stop in on their next trading trip to the coast. Base 99, this is Fowler, Martin spoke into the radio. Come in, Base 99, this is Fowler. Martin? It was Susan's voice. Oh my God, where are you? You sound so close, and I was so worried when we didn't hear anything for whole days after Walter said you made it to the coast, and he said there were reports of criminals on the highway, and I was just hoping you stayed someplace safe, but I figured you probably wouldn't because... Martin gave Nick a weary look. Base 99, this is Fowler, he said slowly. Oh, oh, right, I mean... Roger? Came a reply, a full octave lower. Um, this is Base 99. Go ahead, Fowler. Ten minutes out, let the sentries know. There was only one sentry, but whoever might be listening didn't need to know that. Roger that, uh, Fowler. Uh, Pixie, out. Tyler pulled over beside the Simmons's driveway. Martin waved Carlos over and told him to get the two-wheel dolly. Susan ran toward the truck, but slowed to a cautious walk as she spotted the bullet holes. Martin didn't like seeing the worry on her face. Her eyes brightened momentarily when she saw him. The serious poker face returned quickly. Is there something I can do to help? Susan said in a deep, dispassionate tone. We do need to unload this barrel of fish, Martin said, matching her tone. Together, the three of them muscled the barrel of fish off the trailer. Nick hopped off with his five-gallon bucket of the profits. Martin slung his bag and carbine over his shoulder and hopped off the trailer. Yeah, get some sleep, Martin, Tyler advised. You've had a pretty full day. Sleep does wonders for these things. They parted with waves as the Ford rattled down the dirt road. Martin, Carlos, and Susan wrestled the barrel of fish up to the back deck where it could stay cold but be less handy for animals. Carlos returned to his sentry post. Martin and Susan pushed the black curtain away from the back door. Uh, where is everybody? Martin asked. He expected more of a homecoming. Oh, Judy, Anna, and Lucas are sleeping. Uh, they have watches coming up. And Margaret? Oh, she's at some home on Wilson Hill, helping them with their food storage. Or something. Dustin went with her. Oh, a new project, eh? Yeah, apparently. The group on Wilson Hill want to optimize their reserves, too, she said. They said they'd be back before dark. Martin shed his bag and carbine in the corner. He plopped into his dining room chair as if it were his final destination. I'm really beat. I need to get some sleep, too. Well, when was the last time you ate? Susan asked. I know how you tend to skip meals when you're busy. Martin couldn't recall when he had eaten last. Was it Gill's chowder? Did he eat something for breakfast? If it takes you that long to remember, then you haven't eaten recently, she scolded. Let me get you something. Martin wasn't sure he was hungry. His stomach still felt twisted in a knot. We've got coffee, real coffee, too. Want a cup? Carlos repaired that guy's front door yesterday. He paid with a pound of coffee. I have some hot on the stove, if you want. Hmm. Well, I'll take that as a yes. I'd like some coffee, please. Susan slid into the kitchen and rummaged in the cupboards. We heard from Walter that you made it to the coast. We didn't hear anything the next day. We wanted to think you were just busy trading and dealing. 
She peered at him from under the cabinets. That was his cue to fill in some details of what they did on the coast. Martin sat at the table quietly, head propped up with his arms. She continued, When we didn't hear anything last night, the others said you guys were just really busy. I started to worry that something had gone wrong. She set down a slice of bread with some of Margaret's soft cheese spread across it. She sat in the chair beside Martin, Margaret's usual chair. When he didn't acknowledge the plate of cheese bread, she slid it closer to him. Really tired, huh? she said. Martin looked up at her. Susan gasped. Ah, no, something is wrong. What went wrong? You're not hurt, are you? Martin didn't reply, but continued to look into her eyes. There was refuge in there. Shade on a scorching summer day. Fire on a cold night. Martin closed his eyes tight. That wasn't his shade. Not his fire. No, he said. What is it? she asked. They say it helps to talk about it. Martin sighed heavily. I killed a man today. She gasped again, covering her mouth. After a long pause, her lips moved as if she was about to say something, but kept changing her mind. He didn't want to leave her hanging. She deserved some explanation. The bandits you heard about attacked us on our way back, but we had with us four National Guard guys and a Humvee, so the bad guys didn't win. One of the bandits was captured. I was told to watch him while the others went after the rest of the bad guys. Somehow, the man broke free and lunged at me. <gasps> Martin, she whispered without breathing. I fired twice. He kept coming. Knocked me down. Fighting, trying to get my gun away from me. I thought I missed, but I didn't. While he was on top of me, I could feel him die. I could actually feel life leaving his body. Oh, you must feel awful. But that's the problem. I don't. I mean, at the moment, there was no time to think, only to react. It was self-defense, she offered. You didn't have any choice. I know. But afterward, when I looked at him, laying there, dead, and I knew that I was the one who killed him, I didn't feel anything. I wasn't glad he was dead. I wasn't horrified. It was just a thing that had to be done. Isn't that how psychopaths are supposed to be? They don't feel anything? Is that how it starts? Oh, Martin, no. She reached out to touch his arm. It's just that male detachment thing, that's all. I never understood it before, but being up here, I could see it in action. Is this one of your people skills things? He meant the comment sarcastically, but regretted saying it that way. That I see it? Yes. She ignored his tone. But it's a skill thing you have. I've watched you. Take the squirrels, for instance. You don't hate them. I've caught you talking to them. But if you need to shoot one, defeat us, you turn on your detachment thing and just do what needs to be done. It's the same with your chickens. I see you out there talking to them like little friends. But I know when their time comes, you turn on your detachment thing and do what must be done. It's not being a psychopath. It's just a detachment skill. Many of the men up here seem to have it, and a few of the women, too. Most of us can't get past the cute and fluffy feelings. Martin looked up at her with a pretend eye roll. You and your people skills. I can't help it. Maybe it's one of my superpowers, eh? Her eyes twinkled. Do you want that cup of coffee now? Yeah, 
I think I do. As she sat down with two coffee cups, she had a wide smile, but slightly sad eyes. A pair of queens, Martin said before he sipped. Huh? Your poker face. You've got a pair of queens. She shrugged. Yeah, my roommates tried to warn me. I think I've done pretty good with the poker face thing, so far. It's just that, well, right now, I really like this. She gestured to indicate the two of them sitting, talking, having coffee. I like this more than you'll ever know. Outside the front door came the sound of voices. Margaret and Dustin were home and talking to Carlos. But, Susan got up with a sigh, I know this isn't my chair. Good night, Martin. She carried her cup of coffee down the hallway and closed her bedroom door. Margaret lingered on the porch, talking to Carlos. Dustin trudged up the stairs, carrying two gallon jugs of milk. Hey, you're home. Welcome back and stuff. Uh, let me put these in the cooler, and then I've got something really interesting to show you. Dustin hurried from the kitchen to the room downstairs. Martin wasn't sure he wanted to see something interesting. He had had his fill of new experiences for one day. Dustin rushed back up the stairs, carrying Judy's laptop. While you were gone, I soldered up some more of those solar sidewalk lights to make a bank that could charge up a laptop battery. Not for playing any games or anything, Dustin rushed in a disclaimer. A anyhow, it's like this. I found an old laptop in the grasses by the substation. It was all burned and stuff, so I figured it was trash, but I thought maybe the battery might be usable. You remember how we wanted a longer power supply for that alarm thing? Well, figured a laptop battery might be just the ticket. Well, the battery was dead, of course, but it did charge up. While I waited for it to charge, I looked at the hard drive. It was okay, too. Well, motherboard was toast, though. Anyhow, I was snooping around on the hard drive. It was a power company laptop, apparently. Uh, it was full of boring stuff. But then I noticed this. Dustin spun the laptop around so Martin could see the screen. Martin was in no mood for minor techno-fascinations, but he was too tired to protest. His shoulders sagged. Dustin, that's a screen full of gibberish. Yeah, kind of. It's the raw code of a PIF file and some other boring scheduler app. But let me do a split screen and then watch this. Dustin tapped rapidly on the keyboard. I was comparing this PIF to one for an app I had, you know, just poking around. After I did my watching chores, of course. Dustin held a big guilty smile. Martin only glanced up. Okay, so while I was comparing the two, my PIF file grew three lines of new code. Dustin held his pose to allow time for Martin to respond with surprise and amazement. He didn't. Well, I was shocked, Dustin continued. Here, watch for yourself. On the right side is a copy with my original PIF. Coming up on the left is my old one with the three new lines. I know they don't match, but watch the bottom right. Ha! Did you see that? Did you? It just grew three new lines of code. Pretty cool, huh? Martin looked puzzled. Cool? His thoughts were bouncing between too many topics to grasp the importance of Dustin's PIF file magic trick. Okay, not cool exactly but I think it means our power grid might have been taken down by a computer virus sort of thing. I have no idea what this PIF does. Probably doesn't matter. I do know that it copies the last three lines of code to other PIFs. 
What if it was part of some bigger virus entity? What if all of the power grid's computers had it, even down to some lineman's laptop? Martin! Margaret finally came in the front door. We didn't know you were coming back today. She stooped behind him and gave him an air kiss over one ear. I tried to radio you, but I guess it wasn't working, she said. Martin didn't look up. Dustin, don't bother him with your computer things right now. Can't you see he's tired? Yeah, I guess. Dustin closed the laptop. We'll talk about it tomorrow, okay? I, I got some theories. Margaret waved him off like a pesky fly. Did you guys get some fish like you thought? I hope so. I was helping some ladies on Wilson Hill. Their supplies are not much better off than the town farms. Margaret paused while hanging up her coat. Are you okay, Martin? He looked into her eyes for a long moment. I had to kill a man today, Margaret gasped. What? I've heard it's good to talk about these things. He gestured for her to sit in her usual chair. That little scene back there with Dustin and the lineman's old laptop wasn't part of my early story outline. Originally, I had Martin talking with Susan, her excusing herself, and then him talking with Margaret. But readers kept asking why the power was out. So, before publication, I added the scene with Dustin and the laptop between the two women to address readers' questions about why the grid failed and why it was so widespread. Rather than get into all of that in an outro, I mean, you just got done listening to 49 minutes of story. Your ears have to be tired, right? I've written a post about it over at my Buy Me a Coffee site that explains why the origins of the outage didn't get mentioned. Well, much. There's also a bit of additional backstory fiction related to that question, available to Siege Club members. If you've ever wondered why the power went out, go check out the post. That's at buymeacoffee.com slash mcroland slash blog. Check it out. 